So I was like, okay, this looks organic. This was a real mushroom. And it was the single most meaningful thing I've ever done in my whole life, full stop. So, and this was sort of the beginning of my psychedelic journey and my psychedelic business journey. All right, everyone. Today we have a very special guest. We're going to veer a little off the uh, the crypto DeFi Bitcoin track for Christian today. Uh, Christian Angermeyer, you guys may know him from some articles titled, I took mushrooms and made billions off crypto or billions off Bitcoin. My hope is that we go a little bit deeper. Uh, before we jump in, I want to give a quick shout out to Luca, who's one of the best data providers in the space. They've been a longtime supporter and also... Christian, I've heard you talk about Bretton Woods on another interview that we've done. We're hosting a conference in Bretton Woods, August 11th through 13th. Uh, investor only, executive summit, invite only. But for folks who want to attend, you can head on over to our website, use discount code Empire to apply for 5% off. Now that we've got that out of the way, Christian, welcome to Empire. It is uh, so nice to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great pleasure. And thank you that we're going to go deeper than that headline because uh, the headline <laughs> was not wrong, but it was it was shortened. So my yes, it's a longer story than just that headline. Yeah. But happy I'm to- curious. So I was, um, I was I was doing a little like promotion for the for this podcast and I was also doing some research for the podcast and I noticed nearly every single podcast or article that you are featured in or go on. Someone mentions billionaire Christian Angermeyer. How did, I mean, it's obviously a little, a little bit of clickbait, but like, how does this make you feel when, when, when everything is always billionaire Christian Angermeyer? Well, it, it really, I think it's, uh, there is no real uh, feeling or whatever. I think this is how the world works, meaning we, meaning you run a media empire. Like, so, so it's sort of um, people want shortened stuff, headlines, call it clickbaits, call it nicer. Yeah. So you get used to it. So it's, it's, I think it's in generally, I don't like it when, uh, or don't like it is wrong, like, but it's like, it's always shortened because every single thing uh, which you say about the person, uh, humans are so complex. Yeah. So uh, again, but I do, I do understand people need like labels and headlines and there are worse labels than that. Like, so it's like, <laughs> yeah, so I don't want to complain. It's just like, uh, I, I like the depth actually of many things, meaning, Coming to the headline, for example, I really do believe that uh, psychedelics beyond the medical use, uh, what my company Atai is working on, um, is doing so many, I mean, it has so many facets it can do for human beings and sort of bringing back or making you open for innovation is, is one of them. And so, so I can talk half an hour if you want about sort of how you or how somebody as a founder or investor can actually get more creative and more more in tune with disruption with psychedelics so that was sort of my whole story and then i wanted to make an example and said and it's indeed true like but after i had talked like uh, more than 30 minutes about innovation and psychedelics i was like and as an example i really did fully understand uh crypto and bitcoin and the whole concept of of sort of a tokenized world on mushrooms. So that's true. Like, again, but it's sort of a deeper meaning uh, behind it. Were you on mushrooms? But this is why I like podcasts, honestly, because you have an hour, whatever we're going to do, to go a little bit deeper. And you're going to make a headline out of it, which is fine. But at least when people listen to it, what they hopefully do at the moment, like then, uh, then you can go deeper and sort of explore more intellectual concepts. 
All right, so we're gonna get into mushrooms, psychedelics, longevity, Bitcoin. For the folks who didn't click the clickbait article about the mushroom guy who made a billion off of Bitcoin, can you just give a quick high level on who Christian Angermeyer is? Wow, that's again quick, quick question <laughs> that is hard. But like in short, try I, to uh, try to sum your life down into like uh, thirty seconds for me, Christian. Yes. Right. <laughs> Easy task. Okay, two minutes. No, like uh, okay. So I started as an entrepreneur. That's maybe very important information because although I'm now on the investor side, I still sort of think and work my mind like an entrepreneur. I'm coming from a very normal family, so. When I say I run my family office, what I do, uh, um, uh, it's it's not inherited money. It's uh, sort of self-made. My first company was a biotech company. A kind of random thing because um, uh, I, I'm not a scientist. I had started studying and never finished it uh, economics, but always had a passion for the quirky things like science, like tech, whatever. So two of my tutors, famous scientists, told me about an idea. I jumped on it. We started the company together, which became really big. It's today, the company is called Al Nylam, is a, is a $20 billion company. Uh, I sold very early, so I didn't make the full ride, but it was a great start in life. This is why I skipped university. And practically so since 20, 23 years now, uh, I'm actually um, I'm active, as I said, uh, as an entrepreneur and investor, sort of a little bit morphed in an investor. But when we investing with a Pyron, my family office, we're always incredibly hands on because in my heart, I'm still this entrepreneur kid. So I want to work with all the companies uh, we have. Uh, we, now, this was more than 30 seconds, but like we're looking at mainly three things. Biotech is still one of the biggest, um, our biggest sector, uh, then we do a lot in fintech and crypto. Um, and the third vertical uh, is what we call um, deep tech, which is anything space tech, AI, um, cybersecurity, stuff like that. So real technological innovation. I think we'll take it. I think we'll take it. So you were, uh, you were 23 when, I, I know you came from, you know, really, really, really small, I think it was 90 person village in Bavaria then moved to this 2000 person, like didn't grow up super wealthy. So you were 23 when you really made your first buck in the buy. Yeah, so company. I started the company when I was 20. So I'm practically an entrepreneur since the age of 20. So I'm 43 now, so 20, 23 years. Uh, yes, and so it became successful 20, 20, when I was 22. It was The good thing was it was obvious with the biotech company from the beginning that it was doing really well because it was obvious that the science has a lot of might, but uh, sort of we IPO'd it, which is super quick, three years later when I was 23. What was that like, being 23, making so much money? Um, it was definitely the basis for me skipping university for good. So I was like, when I did that a year earlier, one and a half years earlier, but when I already saw this is working out, so it was sort of giving me a lot of security. The main two thoughts were like, okay, now I can do everything I want to do. So I, uh, and the two things are sort of the two takeaways are and were, uh, okay, no business with assholes because life is too short to be surrounded by bad people. And second, I just want to invest and deal with stuff which really excites me because I don't have to do it. So everything I wake up in the morning and it, sometimes I have a stressful day like everybody, but I'm always reminding myself whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it because I really love to do it, like, and not because I have to do it, because I could just, I mean, obviously now even more than then, I could just stop and whatever, move on an island, uh, but I don't want to because I think it's really exciting uh, what we're doing. 
This was a, a tough interview to prep for, I'll be honest, because we can go so deep on so many topics. So we can talk about Bitcoin, we can talk, talk about psychedelics, longevity. You obviously have some amazing stories about taking mushrooms and seeing the light. Uh, but I actually wanted to talk about something else that I've never heard you talk, or I haven't heard you talk about since 2010. Um, I heard you, I think it was at a, a small, on a small panel at Harvard uh, in 2010 talking about Botswana and your involvement in Botswana and on, with the Botswana Bank. I don't know. And, and, and one of the things you were talking about is climate change. So I don't know if you even remember this, but I wanted to, I don't know. I've, I've never heard you explore climate change and your involvement in Africa. So Interesting. Okay. I, I try to remember what it was in 2010, uh, but I did own. So from, so I had built up, it was also a startup or a, a company I founded myself. Uh, which was called ADC, African uh, Development Corporation. Um, and uh, we were consolidating banks across Africa. So we indeed we had, when we were with ADC, which I sold in 2014, um, we had banks in, don't want to say the wrong thing, but I think 11 countries in Africa, Botswana uh, uh, including. Yeah, so it was a very, by the way, a very traditional banking business, which then later crypto came and now, we're fully in the sort of transformation of banking or disruption of banking. But sort of the banking mm. business in Africa was very like normal commercial retail banks. Um, so yes, so, so my favorite country in Africa, I always mention that because there I'm still very connected because I love the country uh, is Rwanda. This is where it actually started. So it was very random. Um, I didn't sit in Frankfurt back then when I'm now living in London, but back then I was in Germany. So I didn't sit there and was like, oh yes, we should build up an African bank. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I actually, a lot of things in my life came again, because I have sort of these attitude or, or, um, or, uh, uh, sort of lifestyle that I don't have to do things. I'm like checking or looking around what does it, what excites me and then sort of uh, following my both instincts and curiosity. So, but that means, by the way, that most of my investments, I did not do like super top down that I was sitting there and saying, uh, oh, there is now ABC happening in the world and this is why I want to do it. It's rather that I saw individual, very interesting opportunities. And then when checking out sort of say the opportunity, which excites me in itself, then I was also checking out the macro view on it. And it's sort of going in hand in hand, the same with Bitcoin, like, uh, or in general crypto, like the original thing was that I met some very, very amazing entrepreneurs who were deeply, deeply into crypto and Bitcoin. And by sort of exchanging views and, and looking at their companies, yeah, the main one is, uh, is Brandon Bloomer from, from Block One. Yeah, by doing this, I was like, oh my God, the whole sector is amazing. Yeah, and the same back then with banks in Africa in 2007, yeah, 2007, um, I, uh, I had a dinner in Germany with uh, the president of Rwanda of all places. Until then, by the way, I had never ever been in Africa at all. Yeah, and it's a very funny story also, which I always remind myself about how important honesty is, because I, I made sort of the most amazing connections because I was very sort of open to people, but not sort of trying to be overly polite in a mean, in a way like lying. I give you what I want to say. Like, so we had this amazing dinner, which was organized by friends and, um, and we sort of really hit off. Like we understood each other really, or how you say, uh, connected really well. And, uh, and then at the end of the dinner, 
the president of Rwanda was asking me like, so have you been ever to Africa? Yeah. And I was like, uh, no, I haven't like nowhere. Like, and he was like, oh yeah, then you should visit Rwanda. And I was like thinking for a second because I didn't want to go because not because of Rwanda. It was like, I'm a super coward. Actually, people always think I'm very, very risk taking, but in many ways I'm very, very conservative or, or like uh, risk averse and the same for my health. And I, was, I had these very, very ignorant, and I really say it out loud, though, because, like, because I was so ignorant. I was like, ah, Africa, what is in Africa? Nothing except of maybe beautiful animals and a lot of diseases and war and famine and like all of the bad pictures you have when you have never been there, by the way. So it was very ignorant. But for a second, I was like, should I say, yeah, yeah, I'm coming and then sort of never going to call him again? Yeah. Uh, or should I be honest? And I told him that I said, look, I don't want to come. Thanks for the invitation, but I'm deeply afraid of it. Yeah. And he was like, look, at least you're honest, because most other people would have said, yeah, yeah, and never come. Yeah. He said, you're incredibly ignorant on that topic. He said, lovely evening, but that is like a bummer that you're so ignorant. Yeah. Let me convince you that you're completely wrong. And I still said no, by the way, and he's a head of state. Yeah. And then two weeks later, he came back and was like, I can't forget that sort of ignorance of you. And I need to make sure that you have the proper view on Africa. Please come. I guarantee for your safety. And so I went to Rwanda. I then said, OK, let's do it um, in, in an insane way, by the way. It was so funny. It was like comical because I, I took a doctor and security and she's all not needed because Rwanda is the most amazing country, honestly, in Africa. It's like the Singapore of Africa. Yeah. So and and so it was practically 180 degrees different than what I had expected. It was sort of practically my expectations were lower than low. Like and my the reality is amazing because this young country, like a lot actually with digital already back then and like very modern, uh, very thriving. Um, and I was like, wow, like if and then, then by the way, then I like arbitrage. I was like, if this is if I'm the if I'm the sort of personification of what the Western world, by the way, back then, don't forget this was in 2007. Yeah, what the Western world is thinking about Africa, and if this is the reality, Rwanda, I should invest here. And then I literally came back from the trip and had bought a small local bank. Yeah, and um, and then I was at home and I was like, who's gonna manage that local bank for me? Like. Um, and, uh, and then I called a friend who was at Boston Consulting Group running banks. And I was like, are you up for the adventure of a lifetime? Um, and he actually was, he's still a colleague of mine. Um, and so then Dirk is his name, Dirk Habecke, he, uh, became the head first of the Rwanda bank, but then we were like, ah, we should be maybe bigger. And then we started buying other banks and quickly we were one of the top five, top three banking groups in Africa. And are you still? No, we sold 2014. Bank, to be very fair, I think, by the way, it's going to change with fintech and crypto. But really, like the old fashioned banking in Africa is incredibly complex. So I completely underestimate. Meaning we made money because I, meaning we worked really our asses off. Like, but it's, it's, it was an uphill battle. Yeah. And, and what I also had to realize, sort of, again, hopefully some of your viewers say, well, he's telling us what we already know. But like, for me, like I was so positively um, overwhelmed by Rwanda, yeah, and I forgot that Africa, forgot, but like Africa is a continent, not a country. Meaning, just because Rwanda is doing amazing, doesn't mean it's great to do business in other places. So, so Africa as a whole is very diverse, 
and there are places where it's not as easy to do business than in Rwanda, which is the problem of the continent. I think they that is still sad actually because like so many people, including me, always predicted sort of the rise of Africa. And so far it didn't really happen. I think Africa is way uh how you say uh playing beyond their weight, yeah. Um for structural reasons yeah uh, some countries have overcome that like rwanda but meaning in other countries you still have sort of very sort of bad in general economic conditions so i i sort of it was an amazing time i learned a lot was sort of almost an adventure it was it was it was an adventure uh but it's sort of if i look at my african experience um, I would say if you do, we again, we make good money, but like if you do time, if you do risk, reward and time weighted, so how much of energy and of my own time, and again, I always have a portfolio of companies, so I have opportunity costs, I had to put into Africa, uh, into that venture, so to say, then it was sort of a mediocre deal or a mediocre mm. uh, IRR, so to say, especially when you do the time weighted and the effort weighted. So help me grapple with something. You are from this 90 person village in Bavaria. You don't drink alcohol. You don't smoke cigarettes. You're not late night partying. Mike Novogratz also calls you the best networker that he's ever met in his entire life. And coming from Mike, that's saying something. So, and, and you're name dropping, like, you know, head of state you know, in Rwanda, uh, the head of banking at BCG, um, you know, th- these, these really big names, right? And so... What like when did you kind of grow out of your shell of this like nerdy Bavarian kid to like like when did that Christian hit the scene? Who and, and like the follow-on question to that would be, and how did you become the world's best networker? Well, and that's what Mike is saying. It's very hard to according according to uh, according, according to Mike. To Mike <laughs> like um, what is so? I think there is. Uh, I think in some things in life you have sort of these one sort of moment, but it's not in that case, meaning I always was very outgoing. Um, Finally, by the way, I'm an outgoing introvert, so I can equally, when COVID hit, I spent like eight weeks in a row in my apartment and it was actually amazing. Like I can be also, I'm not that outgoing person who has to be around or, or surrounded by people all the time. I actually need my time alone to think and read and whatever watch stupid movies but like to to decompress yeah and at the same time i can be and want to be very outgoing like and i had always a huge curiosity in other people i think that so i don't even like i know it's a compliment from my but i don't even like the word networker because sometimes that associates a little bit that you meet people for a reason and i i think the the reason why i met amazing people is that i had no reason kind of to meet them in terms of like I really like wanted to meet people for the sake of meeting somebody. And by the way, I don't think it's on the recording, but you said it as well. And that's a great thing. Like you, when you do the podcast, you meet people yeah, uh, because you're interested in them. Yeah. And so I think being genuinely interested in other people is, is sort of a good basis for, and then by the way, it's the power of compounding, like many things in life, if you do them constantly over a long time, they really yield. People normally want returns too quickly. Yeah. And so, yeah. And if you look at like, if you, in my case, if you want to talk about network, if you do for 23 years, if you're like, I would say a nice guy, which I hopefully I am. And I'm especially because of psychedelics, I really want to be a good human being. Like 
Yeah, so, but if you're a nice person and if you are interested in other people and if you sort of um, uh, persistent but also like constant in your whatever, if you're like just a real person, yeah, then I think it just compounds and then one person introduces to the other and like, and again, they do that because they know I'm interested in the other person even without me. I mean, I'd met so many people, actually my best deals ever, and which then it came did not come because somebody said, oh, there is a deal, but somebody, like the same with when sort of uh, a very uh, mutual friend said, oh, the president of Rwanda is a really interesting person, which by the way, he is, is one of the most amazing leaders of our time, and he is in Germany, and we should do a dinner. And I was, although I had no connection with Africa, and I didn't have an intention to have a connection with anything, this was not that I was like, oh my God, yes, I wanna do business in Africa, and this is why I'm going there. I went to the dinner, of President Kagame because I was interested in him for no reason, yeah, and that is a good basis, yeah, I think to, I even feel that I'd rather meet people who are like interested in me in generally and not want to pitch me a deal or want something and then normally if you're like-minded that does actually result in something because, but that is sort of a consequence, not the, not the, the intention from the beginning. If I, if I think about one thing, I, I would say if that is maybe the, because obviously there are maybe, I think when we deal with brain research, whatever, there are so many things which make us who we are and we don't even remember them because it can actually be small things. And by the way, also on the negative side, so people can have, for example, depression because they have a trauma, but the trauma, meaning obviously everybody thinks of a war trauma, but trauma can be tiny things in the childhood, which for the five-year-old person was very bad and maybe the person doesn't even remember that trauma but like the aftermath is still there so but so if i would say one thing which i think made me a little bit like how i am in terms of socializing or interacting with other people is that i was uh, or i am an only child yeah which is a pity i would have liked to have brothers and sisters and in the village i grew up everybody else had three four children so in my so there were a lot of children in my age, around about ten plus minus some years, but I was the one who had no natural person to play with because they all had their brothers and sisters. So I remember that I realized very early with four or five, okay, you have to be nice to those kids, you have to share, you have to invite them, you have to share your toys with them because otherwise you're lonely. Like otherwise you sit at home and they play with their siblings because they can't run away. So I was always the one who had to sort of be the outgoing one and win over friends because I was an only child. So that's maybe one of the things which I would quote made me if that's the question. All right guys, it's ad time. I'm gonna let you guys in on a little secret. There's one company that's powering a ton of the crypto data in the space and by crypto data basically there's all these uh, companies traditional financial institutions that need crypto data for you know accounting purposes for tracking the value of their assets for running audits right and so there's one company they're called luka l-u-k-k-a i've talked about them on the podcast before they're powering some of the largest businesses in the world in both the crypto and traditional financial services space they're the primary pricing source used by s p dow jones indices for their new crypto index so i want to uh, just throw this out there if you guys are any sort of business that needs to value crypto assets 
create financial statements, uh, perform any sort of normal accounting audit process, you guys should head on over. It's Luca, L-U-K-K-A, Luca.tech, L-U-K-K-A dot T-E-C-H forward slash empire, or just head over to Luca.tech forward slash empire. Tell them I sent you. They'll take care of you. Alrighty. Let me know what you think. You mentioned COVID. Um, I want to get your response to COVID and you can take it from a cultural perspective, monetary perspective, or medical perspective and like healthcare system. What, so when COVID hit and I mean, when it really took off March of 2020 is the month that it feels like it really took off in the United States. And then the government printed all this money and then we, you know, gave stimulus checks to everybody. And then our healthcare system really changed. What, like, what are your general thoughts on just the COVID response by governments, by companies, by people, by culture, by society? Good and broad question. Meaning, I think overall it's sort of overblown. Yeah, I so so, and that that fits into another theory I have, which is always one of the I think deeper reason because a lot of people, especially in the Bitcoin world, uh, talk about which is rightly so, like about the excessive money printing and sort of monetary policy. Yeah, um, and one of the reasons why I think this will go on in an extreme way, and this is one of the reasons why I'm so bullish on, on, on various cryptocurrencies, but especially Bitcoin, yeah, is, uh, by the way, on assets, on high quality assets in general, is that we live in a world which cannot tolerate any pain anymore in a, in a broader concept. So, so, and, and sort of, on an economic uh, on an economic level, sort of the money printing is sort of the outflow of that. So, uh, or the the outcome that because we can't tolerate pain, every problem we have uh, and which is will come up economically will be flooded with money in order to avoid the system feeling pain. If that makes sense, yeah. Um, while, for example, like, and then I come to COVID, like when I started my career, which was. Uh, yeah, 2000 and then 2001 yeah um we had the recession and stock market everything which was a combination of sort of an uh, um, the stock market being uh anyway going down and then came the 9 11 event yeah and that sort of really sort of was a double whammer yeah and equally to any other by the way macro crisis it was not my fault that these planes flew into the twin towers yeah and nor was it anybody else's fault like yeah so, but we all suffered, yeah. But back then, the normal expect, uh, by the way, and I think would be rightly so, the normal um, explanation was, well, but this is the nature of macro shocks. Like, it's not your fault, but you have to deal with it. This is how investing works. Like, yeah, like back then, a good portion of my portfolio companies died, yeah. And I could have said, not my fault, yeah, but like nobody was helping me or anybody else in the world because so. So 2008 was already a little bit different and then 2012 in Europe and now like so from crisis to crisis, the threshold of society in general and of any sort of stakeholder to tolerate pain went down and the government is sort of fulfilling that with money printing. So that's a, so on the same level with COVID, yeah, I think we it, meaning, yes, it's, so it is obviously a pandemic and we didn't know uh, at the beginning and it's also worse than the flu. But still, especially when I look what 
how slowly governments are taking now back the measures, there is a big portion of sort of excessiveness and, and fear and panic, yeah, where the governments in generally, that's a worldwide phenomena, are again not able to communicate rationally with their people and say, look, this is what's happening. Yes, people are going to die, but there is a part at least where people have to be responsible themselves. Like, yes, we did it. Uh, and again, I know I'm sort of a little bit uh, trying to uh, to avoid too much political incorrectness, but like, yeah, but like, no, but like, because there was always the, the notion uh, we're doing it for the older people, yeah, which is right, because they obviously were disproportionately affected. But like, at the same time, nobody was saying, well, but this older people also have sort of a, uh, are a little bit self-responsible because they could stay at home as well. And funnily or ironically, cynically, the older people I know, including, by the way, my parents, we had huge fights. They were the one who were doing the least because they were like, look, no, like we grew up in the post-World War things. Bad things happen. We're going to go on with our life. And I was like, well, fuck you, parents. Like, this is why we're all like doing that shit is for you. Like, and so, or I had other older people, like 80-year-old uh relatives of mine who said well but i'm staying at home because i'm 80 i'm really at risk now but like why so but the government or no government was able to sort of this meaning i but another thing we're completely lacking in our world is nuance yeah so again if i don't want to say like oh we just have to have covid go through but like but like i say like we're missing in anything including covid yeah or in, in, in the way we treat covid we miss the nuance and the way the ability of the governments to communicate with, with their people like grown-ups and say look that's what the problem is that's what we do that's what we not do because overall nobody is talking about the secondary and tertiary side effects like depression skyrocketing like uh, um, we have in a time when we're wearing here like my psychedelics company like yeah we have some very and I, I can't say it yet because this will be a big headline but we have several several major celebrities as well and one which is one of the biggest singers of our time yeah, did a survey among his fans who are all around between 15 and 25, I would say. And he told me like that 80%, and it was thousands of people who participated in that survey of young people, 80% say that they have a mental health issue after COVID, 80%. And nobody's sort of talking about that damage and so on, yeah. Or last point, let me put it in a number, yeah. Um, there is um, there is a term, and I, this was maybe the most extreme or stupid thing I've always reading. The headline was a lot, oh, a, a human life cannot be measured in money. That was always the, the argument which killed everything. Whatever people were doing, if somebody said, well, is that not a little bit too much? Yeah, Then you had this group of people in America and Europe who said, no, just like zero dead people of COVID, that's the goal. Yeah. By the way, I'm wondering, will we do that? Side note, now every year with, with the flu, because there are a lot of people dying actually from the flu. By the way, all people, it's the same, it's more than COVID, but like, yeah. So, but anyway, let's leave that aside. But what they were all claiming, and this was sort of the killer argument, because in a media world we live, it's so hard, unless on a podcast, to argue against it, is like, Human life should have no value, or should have a lot of value. Should have no price tag, or nothing. Human life should have uh, should have um, no price tag. Yeah. So, by the way, it always has. Yeah. There is a term in in um, in in economy, quali, which measures how much a government is willing to pay for a healthy 
one year of its citizen. Yeah, and cynically, two examples today. So right before COVID, Germany had a big discussion. There is a very sad children's disease where if they don't get the cure, I think it's till year two. Yeah, these children are going to die soon. But if they get an injection of the cure till age two, they're going to have a normal life. Yeah, and the injection costs a million dollar. But compared, I would say, there, I would say emotionally, yes, obviously a human life is worth some million dollars, a whole life. These are children of two years old. But Germany, and I think it was a similar discussion in other countries because it was a new cure, was not willing, and nobody complained, was not willing to pay that life-saving injection for all of the 50, this is a very rare disease, for all of the 50 children who had it, yeah, and they made a lottery, yeah, and it was very heartbreaking. They were parents raising money and da-da-da, so... Yeah, so we do it all the time. Or well, the other example is, yeah, uh, I don't know the number now in Germany or in the US, like, but a lot of people die every year from a heart attack. Yeah, and one thing which determines if you're going to die if you have a heart attack, the main thing actually is how long it takes from you having the heart attack coming to the hospital. So a natural, as the same, and by the way, I guess, I don't want to say it wrong, but I, I would say guess more people die from heart attack than from COVID. Yeah, so we could say the same. We could say the same what we are, the same sort of view we apply on COVID. We could say nobody should die of a heart attack ever anymore. And the solution is pretty easy, by the way. We're going to build a fully equipped heart clinic with a standing staff in every single gas station in the world. So you might say, now that's crazy. Yeah, that's, by the way, equally crazy what we do with COVID measures. Yeah, but we could do yeah, it. If, yeah, but if I say that's crazy, that means I'm putting a, a dollar amount on a human life, which is exactly, exactly and what, what we do yeah, all yeah, the yeah. time, because otherwise, yeah, we, yeah. if we wouldn't do that, we would have a heart clinic in every single gas station. Yeah, because if we would do that, and if we had enough people and da, 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 way little or way less in English, like way less people would die of a heart attack. But somewhere governments draw a line. And by the way, they calculate that very, very precisely. They're like, okay, how many clinics do we have to operate? So what's the marginal cost per life saved? And da, 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 da. We just left all this rationality out uh, when discussing about COVID. Yeah? And um, maybe adding what I do, I make out of it. I think there is the one thing is the in inability of governments to, to communicate Plus that it was a panic-induced thing, so in, 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 in panic times, things are always different. But there is also, and that, by the way, makes me so bullish on biotech, there is a little bit in it that I think politicians were realizing that the demand of or the, the wish list of their voters has changed. I think 30 years ago, 20 years ago, people were actually putting more value on freedom, for example, and less on health. And I think that has really changed. Yeah. And I think politicians realize that. And in a certain way, it's not just their fault. It's always too easy to just criticize politicians and say, oh, they can't communicate. It's part of the story. Yeah. But I think it's also part of the story that there is really a majority of people who's like, I'm willing to sacrifice freedom, money, whatsoever for more health, which, by the way, makes me incredible sort of bullish on biotech because biotech is the industry which is sort of delivering health to people. So, and I think going forward, again, not in an as crazy way with, like we saw with COVID, but governments and people will be willing to spend more money on the health of their people. 
yeah, uh, because they see it's rewarded by voters. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sympathetic to politicians, Christian, because I don't know, they've got a very tough job, especially in the United States. They're managing 300 million people. It's tough enough for me to manage 25 people at BlockWorks. And like my, my grandfather was a U.S. senator for 20 years. And like, I'm very sympathetic, but it, it does feel like on both the lockdowns and the money printing, it was too excessive. So my question to you becomes, should they not have printed any money and just let you know small businesses and people go bankrupt? And on that same note, should they have let people just roam free and like not do any lockdowns or, or like what's, what is the middle ground there? Like, how do you draw that line? So first of all, by the way, it's very wise I'm saying because I'm saying the same all the time and uh, to, to realize how complex the job of politicians is. So it's so very I, tough. It is very yeah. tough. Yeah. So I do have several friends in several countries who are in government or partly running a country. And so I have an extremely high appreciation. And by the way, it's you're already very like mature because in the, my early days as an entrepreneur, like I think the first instinct of an entrepreneur is always like I would do it better. Yeah. So you want to run your own country because you're like, ah, like I, I can run it better. And then you realize, oh, my God, it's already so complicated to run 25 people, 100 people, 1000 people. Um, what about and how complex? So I, even if I disagree with politicians uh, on measures, I would always want to remind people or remind myself how complicated their job is. And just to say, oh, they under don't understand things, whatever, is way too sort of is wrong and too shortcut. Like it's like it is a complex thing. So on the let's say on the measures with COVID, it's I think there were sense. I my view is there are sensible things to do. For or have been like especially things which uh, which don't cost a lot of economic damage, yeah, like wearing masks. By the way, which was not the first instinct, yeah, like this for a time, like Germany said at least, uh, I don't know what you say, yes, like don't wear masks, it's not necessary and so. And there I was for myself, okay, you know what? Why not? Like it doesn't kill me. Like it's not, it's just a little bit inconvenient, but it's not destroying anything, neither for me nor for society, yeah. So, and then there are other things which sort of really closing the economy completely, uh, which was a, I think not necessary and B, yeah. Or like the same here in the UK, the only, the main thing, which again, but that's maybe how the world is like how inconsistent that all is like, yeah. So, uh, I think on Trafalgar square here in London, you can't still have more than six people at the same table, but we had a football game yesterday where everybody was like. <laughs> It's just, dumb, and that's what annoys me. Like, in generally in life, what annoys me is inconsistency and hypocrisy. Like, because, like, it's very, think, evil things. Anyway, so we could go now through measures, but I think just, like, being a little bit more rational, and I think a lot of things which some friends of mine confessed to me, like, were done more to please or to, to calm down society, and not because... That is actually the, the annoying part which they should have not done is the ones where they knew they're not doing anything, but it sounded good and they wanted to calm down people. That's, just, that's the bad thing. On the money printing, I actually developed sort of a new thesis, so which is actually that money printing is a very good thing. Yeah. Um, and not just because I'm a profiteer, by the way, you could say egoistically, obviously he's saying that because, uh, because of asset price inflation, because by the way, 
for all of us, meaning the Bitcoin people always complain about it, but that's what is driving partly the value of Bitcoin. So we should all sit there and pray for more money printing. Yeah. So, and in general, by the way, I, because I think it's going on and I explain in a second why I think it's the right thing to do. I think we are going, or we are, no, sorry, we are already fully in this asset price inflation cycle, but I think that's gonna go on. So you and I can do the podcast again in 10 years. Yeah. And all quality assets, even the non-quality one, but hopefully the quality assets more than the non-quality assets will have gone up dramatically. So if, if, if viewers of the podcast take one thing away, you want to be in assets. And then obviously within the assets, you want to be in the best ones. But like, first of all, don't be in cash, be in assets over a 10 year horizon. Yeah, uh, because we, this got, yeah, I wanted to say this insanity will go on, but maybe it is not an insanity because how, I, what I was rethinking is, is a lot of people are making fun at the moment of the sort of negative outcomes or of the excesses, like take GameStop, yeah, and by the way, I don't even want to argue if it's expensive or not, but like, or take Dogecoin, yeah, so, yeah, so there are sort of definitely uh, things happening in the financial world or in the value of assets, which are happening because there is too much liquidity in the market, and maybe we could call a little bit crazy, yeah, I don't want to pick one of them, but you know what, let's take Dogecoin because they are really think it's crazy, yeah, so, but it's not the point, the point is that we Forget, or the people who write about that, especially journalists, forget that actually that's the fringe, that's the small, and obviously we like to talk about the crazy stuff. But if I, if I look at the bigger picture, then what I see at the moment is that amazing ideas, which are though a little bit moonshot ideas, but good ones, really valuable ones, are actually financed because there is so much liquidity in the market. So the whole liquidity um, uh, issue is actually, the, the whole venture market is carried by that, the whole exit market, yeah? And most of these companies though, I don't know the number, but 95% most likely are real. Like these are really good companies, yeah? So by the way, different than what I've seen like back then when I started, there was a lot of bullshit. But like now the majority of things I see is you can say, oh, it's a little bit risky, it's a little bit daring, it's a little bit moonshotty but they are real yeah, and they have the opportunity to get financed because of the excessive money supply. So if I look now on a global basis, by the way, we all tend to overestimate the importance of economy because that's what we're dealing the whole day. We're dealing with finance and investing, whatever. But a politician will tell you, well, the economy is one thing, but I have to look at defense. Yeah, I have to look at social stuff, meaning sort of the life of a politician is way more multifaceted because the world is not a balance sheet. Yeah, the world is a, is a world full of human beings with all of the positives and negatives humanity has, like from being enormously creative to sometimes going at war with each other. So, and if I look at the world at the moment, we have that huge uh, sort of a rising conflict or at least uh, competition between mainly the US and China, yeah, and then in a smaller way, Europe plays a role in Russia. So in my view, which developed the last month, is that where actually economy can, can a little bit show where the world is going is like that whole idea of exponential growth. So in a world of exponential growth, 
companies like Google, once they have a certain market position, are practically, or Apple, with all the, the, um, the, the effects of scale, but especially with the network effects, they sort of cement this market position practically for good. So, and the same, and I think that's an under-reported or an under-thought thing, the same is happening on a government level. So, while 50 years back, in a world of linear growth, the governments, when they had a sort of, when they were falling behind, or governments, countries as a whole, like take Germany in 2000, yeah, we were the sick man of Europe economically, yeah, and then suddenly we were able to do reforms and we like, we're going up. So, and the same, I think, and so in a world of linear growth, countries who were like falling behind for a while were able actually to catch up. And I do not think that is able, they can do that in a world of exponential growth. So what I think is that if certain areas or countries fall behind too much for too long and fall behind in any meaning, like economic, but mainly I think in points of technological leadership, they will not be able to catch up ever again. Or in a simplified version, the first country, which is the first space-dominant nation, the first country which has a really functioning AI in a big way, the first country which has a quantum computer, the first country which solves certain medical problems, yeah, will most likely become and stay the dominant country for a very long time. So if I were America, I would subordinate everything, literally everything, below the target to stay the number one country in any meaning, but especially with techn because technological leadership is what is really decisive. So if I were the US, I would focus everything on staying the technological superpower. So, and then last sentence, sorry that I talk so long, but like, this is what's positively happening in America. Things get financed, companies get financed because of the abundance of money, which really cement sort of the technological leadership. Yeah, or in a very simplified way. And now comes my a little bit distrust yeah, against bureaucracy. Let's say not politicians, but bureaucracy. I personally believe that a 16-year-old Robin Hood trader is a better capital allocator than the government. So the most logical thing to do is let's give more money to young people. Let's send checks out, whatever. Yeah. Yes, they're going to do some stupid stuff with it, like Dogecoin. But actually, the majority is going into great companies like Tesla, whatever. Tesla wouldn't have been able to thrive 10 years ago because they need so. And that is good for the world because ultimately, last sentence, I very much, meaning we can always criticize the US government and what is going Europe, but it's still a great place to live. You live in the US, I live half in the US, half in Europe. I don't live in China. Yeah, so, and I want to live in Europe and the US. And I, I like the values we've built up. Yeah, um, and the only way to keep these values up and sort of dominant in the world is to stay the dominant power. So I deeply, deeply, deeply root for the US and Europe, but Europe is a little behind. Like, to stay their power, and I think they can achieve that by money printing. Can I try to sum up what you just said? <laughs> yeah, sorry for the long, I'm always like- Which is, no, 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 I just wanna make sure I understand it. So it's that money printing is actually good because e even though it potentially inflates away the, the wealth of the citizens and you know, you know things like that, it's actually good because A, 
we need to there instead of going from a linear state linear state competition where every 20 years another state can leapfrog another state now we're in an exponential competition between states so that the first state that actually wins is going to stay there for a very long time because we're living in this exponential world that's the first reason the second reason would be when you give money to the people your thesis is that people are actually better capital allocators than government so yes we're taking money away from the people but let's give money back to the people in the form of money and money printing and things like that and they will actually allocate the capital to things like bitcoin tesla amazing venture investments that are moving the the world forward is that the thesis yep perfect and maybe one last sentence who's paying the bill somebody's always paying the bill the bill is paid by rather older people who have cash yeah and first of all most people who have cash savings yeah not always spend them they someone die and inherit them to somebody yeah so it's a little bit like schrodinger's cat as long as they don't spend the money they don't realize that they're actually poorer than they think <laughs> yeah so it's not really bad I mean, i'm cynical but it's not really bad for them because they most likely wouldn't spend it anyway yeah and second it's by tendency rather older people who gonna i'm very cynical and i'm oversimplification and, and but die anyway somewhere and actually the people who receive the money is not the rich people. The rich people is almost like a side effect, but I don't think it's a so bad one that we can't sort of can't have it. But the money goes to younger people. Yeah, the money goes to working people. Like so, so net actually more people profit on the back of the people who super simplified sit at home, hoard cash, and are hoarding cash and are not participating in the economy anyway. So. So I was never a fan actually of, of cash in terms of like the idea of cash. I always said that should be punished because money has to flow. Yeah. And so if the idea that people are sitting on from small savings to big fortunes and just in cash or in unproductive assets, actually already 20 years ago, I was like, this should be punished. I never got the interest rate thing. I always like I had an idea in 2005, I was pushing politically never went somewhere where I was like, we should abolish interest rates and there should just be zero interest rate. A government, the government should take the money. Yeah. So there should be sort of a secure way to store money, but zero interest rates and you lose money practically by not participating in the economy, paying people with interest rates for not doing anything valuable is, is wrong anyway. So people who kept money in a bank account instead of making a little bit of interest would actually pay the bank. Yeah, or at least don't get yeah. anything. Like now it's yeah, normal, yeah, yeah. but like I was very much early thinking about that idea because owning yeah. cash or holding cash should be in a certain way punished because you're not productive. I think money should flow and people should participate, either consume it or invest it, but like do something with it. For me, owning cash is like a very, very sort of, you almost check out of the world, so to say, because you're not active in it, neither as a consumer nor as an investor. So I sent a tweet out yesterday and the day before saying, I'm, you know, Christian is coming on the podcast. I'm so excited. Like, what do you want to, what do you want to talk about? And the tweet only got like six or seven comments. And I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, oh, bad engagement. Maybe people aren't excited about Christian. And then I opened my direct messages and I had 50 direct messages from people asking about, about psychedelics and longevity. And it's the first time that's ever happened, Christian, which is people didn't feel comfortable asking their questions in public. 
<laughs> I have so, to answer them in public. That's almost not. But you, but you answer. have to answer them in public. Yes, exactly. So, but my first question is just like, how have you seen sentiment change around psychedelics in the last? How how long have you been working on psychedelics? Can you give us your psychedelic story? Actually, can yeah, you back the, it up a little bit? Yeah, I tried to make that one short because uh, I, I told it's all for me. Happy yeah. to retell it because it's my favorite story. But like, not that I bore people, but like. So I um, came, uh, I, as you said, I never drank alcohol, really never. I never smoked a cigarette. I never took any other drug. And um, and then it was, so, I'm very spiritual, so I believe, by the way, that's another thing, how I look at the world in generally, is that things which happen to me, good ones or bad ones, are normally always good for me. So my, my basic assumption is whatever is happening, even if it feels bad in the first moment, is good or even amazing i just need to find out why yeah so so i go through the world a little bit and practically sometimes i'm a little uh, exaggerating even like because everything which is happening like i sort of think of oh this is kind of a message i just need to decode it yeah so but to be fair the biggest things in my life happened that way so it started 2013 when i was at a dinner uh, where i was sat next to a very famous neuroscientist actually with the idea of my friends to make me loosen up a bit and drink alcohol that evening. And they were like, oh yeah, you can talk sense into Christian in order to drink alcohol. So he completely miserably failed because he had to admit that alcohol is just bad. There is, by the way, another important takeaway for the, for, for the, for the viewers, like alcohol is unfortunately is just bad. There is nothing good in it. Yeah. So, so didn't succeed, but then we went through all the other drugs because by the way, I'm a pragmatic person. So in terms of if you would, or if somebody would make the pitch to me and say, look, this is what is happening negatively to your body, but this is the good thing you get out of it. I would say, maybe I do it. Like, so alcohol has zero good things, more or less. Yeah. If you discount, okay, maybe makes you party better, but I was never bad in partying. So I was always outgoing, whatever. So, but, so, but you could say, I was like, look, tell me about the other stuff. Tell me about heroin. Tell me about whatever. Is there anything which has at least a upside? And then I he was like, nah. So the bad drugs all are really bad. But his short version was at the very end, you should look at psychedelics because they are actually uh, sort of uh, outcast or uh, demonized for no reason. And they have no downside and a lot of upside. And I was like, nah, this is too crazy. Like it's a schedule one drug, not going to do it. Uh, but he told me all of the scientific basis about psychedelic. And so this was the start. And then suddenly things were like, oh, this person was talking about psychedelic, this person. And then ultimately a year later, I was with my best friends whom I blindly trust uh, in the Caribbean where it's legal. They had mushrooms. So I was like, okay, this looks organic. This was a real mushroom. And so I did it. Um, and it was the single most meaningful thing I've ever done in my whole life full stop and then the next day already I was like because I'm an entrepreneur in my, in my heart I was like okay um, this was some of these stuff uh, of these uh, uh, compounds were legal somewhere or medically available somewhere as a medication yeah so um, uh, I want to bring it back uh, to um, into that state so and this was sort of the beginning of my psychedelic journey and my psychedelic business journey which was 2014 and how does Mike Novogratz tie into the journey? Very crazy story. And by the way, a very, very uh, spiritual, uh, uh, or again, you can call it whatever you want. But like for me, it was very like spiritual because I was for like two years, I was 
sort of telling my close friends because I, I'm very open. Again, the good thing is I never had anything to fear in terms of business because meaning it's my own business. So I'm, nobody could fire me except of myself and I'm not going to do that. So you know what I mean? Like I was not like, oh my God, I, and by the way, I think people make too much uh, sort of thoughts about be open. I told you that before, like I, 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 I gained so much of value in any form, friends, good deals by being open and not fake. Yeah. So I was talking to my friends about it, but I had sort of respect the first two years, 2015, 16, being I would not have done what we do now like being out and about about it and then I had end of 2016 I had an amazing trip uh like literally it was the 29th um uh, uh of December 2016 and uh and one of the big insights and I don't want to go too much unless you want to get into the spirituality and what like how a trip feels but like so you you learn things about yourself and about the world and about the interaction of you to the world so it's really teaches plants and so one of the things i learned uh, or the message i got was like you have to talk about it super broadly super in a public way don't worry about it it's gonna be really good for you so that was literally the message and because I'm so much into that spiritual side, I trust these messages. So after every mushroom trip, I have a whole Excel list, what I've learned and how I see the world and how I see myself and where I can be better. Yeah, so so that was my, my main sort of uh, thing. And uh, so and right after the trip, I, I flew to New York uh, and the first person whom I met after business-wise after that trip was Mike Novogratz. And when I went into his office, which I will never forget how he's sitting there, I was telling myself, that's your guinea pig. Now, now you have to prove that you dare to talk about it in a little bit of a broader way. And Mike was like, you know, Mike, like, hey, what's up? Like, and I was like, yeah, I just had a great mushroom trip and I want to talk to you about it. Like a little bit like the little Mormon <laughs> standing there with his Bible and like, let's talk about uh, uh, the latter days. Uh, so I was like, let's talk about mushrooms. Um, and that's like, that's like the, per the perfect person to do that with, by the way. Like the perfect first guinea pig for you. <laughs> to no, totally. But like, but honestly, I want to say it was really the first person. It could have been somebody else, but it was Mike. Yeah. yeah. And Mike was very um, interested, but... Actually, he said what most people say is super interesting. So I told him an hour about the prep talk, what, what why he should do it. Um, and he was like, I haven't done it since college. That's where most people do it. When, by the way, most people, they remember that they liked it, but it's not a huge impact on you because when you're so young, you have many of the positive attitudes, which in a later age, psychedelics give you back. So if you do it with 40, you're going to have a way bigger wow effect because you lost so much which you don't even know or remember or actively realize what you lost like when you were 20 and the world was your oyster anyway so mike was sort of convinced yeah whatever you would call it but then the next morning this was so spooky he calls me and said christian this is the, the, the most insane coincidence ever like i have not talked about mushrooms for 20 years yesterday you talked two hours passionate about it this morning, my sister called me. She's in Bali with another crazy couple from London, where you live, and they want to also work on and make a company around that. 
And I was like, oh my God, again, I believe in that coincidences. Hit me up. That's our thing. So this is how I met George and Katya from Compass. But Compass wasn't even there yet. Like they had an idea and Compass is sort of my first psychedelic company. Uh, so we then started Compass together shortly after in 2017. Compass Pathways, now stock market listed, which is focused on uh, psilocybin. So the, uh, the active ingredient of magic mushrooms. And then when I saw that working out, it actually in 2017, it very quickly became uh, sort of interestingly obvious that the world is ripe for a renaissance of these compounds. So when I saw Compass is working, um, I was like, wait a moment, there are more of these psychedelic substances. I want to develop all of them. And this is, was the birth minute of Atai, yeah? so, which is a very broad mental health platform I put my Compass stake into it, so Atai still owns 20% uh, of Compass, and Atai is also stock market listed. Um, and we have by far the broadest platform of psychedelic drugs. From my point of view, we actually have everything which makes commercially sense to bring back into the medical world. So Atai owns not, o not, not only a 20% or a 20% stake in Compass, but also working on what MDMA, ketamine, um, acid, what, like what, what are some, uh, okay. So, so practically, if you look at, so there is two things, two answers. The one is like, when you look at the psychedelic world, yeah, there, um, there are many amazing drugs. If you want to make uh, a pharma business, healthcare business out of it, you have to have two main questions. The one is like, can I get enough of patent protection and IP protection around it? Because making a drug medically approved, it costs $100 million plus and can easily be 200. Yeah, so, so we're talking about big numbers per drug and partly per indication. So if, if you want to do it for depression and maybe you have more studies for other indications. So it's a very costly business. So the only way to do it as a business yeah, is to sort of have patent protection and intellectual property around it. So first question, when we looked at the sort of universe of psychedelic drugs was around which drugs actually can we get sufficient patent protection, IP protection, whatever. The second question you have to ask yourself as an entrepreneur is for which drugs is there a place in the medical system? So uh, my, my favorite sort of example we decided against uh, is LSD. So LSD, I always say like with a twink, uh, wink, wink, like in a country where it's legal, it's a great drug for an amazing day on the beach. Yeah. But it, the, it, the, the trip lasts 12 hours and you get the same from a four hour psilocybin trip. So in the medical world, it's obviously extremely costly to have uh, somebody sitting next to you while a trip. And by the way, that's an important, important side information. All the drugs we're developing um, are for uh, medical use, but medical use with a psychotherapist together. So it's not things which you would take home and trip alone because that would be terrible. Yeah. So it's sort of, we call it psychotherapy assisted or sorry, um, 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 uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Yeah. So, so this is, for example, the time somebody sitting next to you is super important. So this is why we decided against LSD. Yeah. But in from practically from all the psychedelic drugs where we could say, yes, we have enough IP and yes, it makes sort of sense in the medical world. 
I think personally, we, we as a Thai have everything. And this is like psilocybin via compass. Yeah, this is MDMA, yeah, derivative of MDMA. This is um, uh, DMT, which is the ingredient of ayahuasca. Um, this is uh, Salvanori A, which is a niche one, but very uh, positive. This is especially Ibogaine, um, which is uh, the only known medical compound which has the potential to completely cure addiction, including heroin addiction, which is obviously a huge problem uh, in the United States um, and globally addiction, but especially in the United States. And, and this is a new version of ketamine. So these are our sort of, let's call it psychedelic drugs. Yeah, I have to add or want to add that when we embarked on that journey, uh, we, um, we also realized that mental health is, by the way, is such a big problem. Like, and people don't know or realize how big. It's more than 1 billion people who suffer from it. But additionally, um, this is, uh, the number is way too low because so many people actually don't come forward yet because it's still a stigmatized disease. So my view is that it's most likely around 2 billion people. Who knows? But like way more and 1 billion people is already a lot. So, but like, so, but so that it's not like, this is not a homogeneous group. Like, so the, the root causes for mental health issues are very manifold and hence you need a broad tool set to find the right one for the respective patient. So while I think psychedelics, or we think at the time psychedelics are as a group, the most promising group of drugs to overcome the mental health crisis, we actually also encountered other mental health drugs, novel ones, which are not psychedelic, but actually have novel mechanism of actions. So, so while I love to be seen as the psychedelic company, yeah, and we are by far the largest one, I would say actually Compass and us are the only real ones because as I said, we were so early, we were the first ones. I think we have everything which makes sense, but we also broadened ourselves then and actually at high now is more like, or is a broad mental health company with the psychedelic portfolio, but also several uh, non-psychedelic drugs uh, in uh, in development. And we're going to add a lot. So Atai is going to be super active. We have a very, very full business development pipeline. So at the moment, we have 11 drug development programs, which is already massive. Yeah, And um, down the road, meaning I think we're going to increase that over the next one to two years, maybe to 20. So, But we're going to grow in terms of programs. Hmm. On a personal note, it makes sense that you started something like Compass because you had this profound psychedelics trip. Where do you draw the line, though, on a personal note? Like, it's like, will, like, will you take ketamine or will you take MDMA? Um, but did both <laughs> in a country yeah. that's legal. Um, so I always have to add that. Uh, <laughs> um, but by the way, there are countries where it's legal. I think it's like, it's really driven, first of all, I mean, I have a special curiosity, which is maybe not because I want to know, like, and we know, again, we know the risk profile, which is very, very low, especially when administered properly. Yeah. So I think already I have the almost uh, obligation yeah, to understand. Yeah? I mean, I didn't take all of, uh, uh, of the psychedelic drugs out there, but sort of I should and I want to. And it's, but I'm very, very stern on the sort of ceremonial use so i'm i really like a lot of people not a lot but like some people i think always think our oh, christian is 
wants to make them just medically available because he's gonna make so much money on it yeah so first of all by the way there are some countries in the world where these substances are recreationally available and it doesn't overlap with the medical world at all so so i'm not saying that that they should just be medically available for money reasons i really really deeply believe that all and now again psychedelic substances yeah are 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 meant to be taken in a very ceremonial setting so throughout history yeah um, they were always taken and finally the 60s in a certain way could almost be like the exemption of the rule because it was a little bit more like hippie like but like the Eleusinian mystery in Greece yeah the whole ritual use in the in South America like even Christianity, which we now know is actually based on psychedelic consumption, it was always very, very ritualized. And I think it's the right thing because these are teacher plants who give you a lot, but the trip in itself must not always be funny. Yeah. So I had very, very, what we colloquially would call bad trips. But I don't like the world because they, they were actually amazing for me because I had to learn certain things at certain points in my time or in my life. So I would rather call them challenging trips. But the reason I was able to take away something positive was because I had good guides during it. So this is our drugs which are very, very important to be taken, again, in the right setting. And what over the last three, four thousand years were the shamans and priests in our times other psychotherapists yeah so so and that is sort of an important framework because i would tell these are not drugs you take for fun like by the way meaning i, I don't even think they fun like if you go to a party in a club and just have a, have a spiritual epiphany that doesn't really work together like it's not even what you want by the way i never understand why people take ketamine which is just making you in the first instance a little bit dizzy yeah um, so I really like would advocate, I meaning A, I would advocate like be very, meaning I don't want to be seen as they are say, oh, go take, because like I try to make them available in the right way from my point of view. Yeah. Because by the way, once they are available medically, yes, obviously they're going to be available for depression, but then I think gradually psychotherapists and doctors will use them also for for like other issues, even positive issues like growth, whatever mm. humans have. So, so sorry, long answer to where I draw the line. Like, so I was always very hopefully good in, in listening to myself. So again, aside of the curiosity, because we are in that sort of world and in the science, it's more like, what do I feel do I need at the moment? And sort of what does my soul need? Yeah. And I, I think I'm quite fine at that moment. Like I, 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 so I didn't do like, for example, ibogaine or or um, or or five meo DMT yet because I, I doesn't call me if that makes sense. I know it's a very blurry answer, but like I do believe that these are drugs which call you in a certain way. So I've actually never shared this publicly before, but um, I get I'm I'm diagnosed with something called cluster headaches, which. Oh, I don't know if you know what those are, but they're yeah. they're like, yeah. So great studies I, we are doing, by the way. So, I can send you. I I would. So this is where I was going to go with this. Is I got my first like cluster attack in 2017, and it was basically three months of hell, and I didn't know what they were. And then they came again at the end of 2020, in October of 2020, 
and the cluster period actually lasted for six months and it was really bad it was it was three times a day my fiance would have to give me a shot uh, in my in my thigh every single day it was you know oxygen tank every day it was, it was, it was quite bad and um, I saw multiple neurologists and I ended up finding something called cluster busters which is like the silliest name but it's a community online of folks talking about it you know it's thousands of people who get cluster headaches and the, these headaches I mean I lose vision it's the worst pain I've ever had in my life it's it, it's terrible and psych- uh, psilocybin is known to be um, uh, the, the world's best cure for these. Yep. And so I, it was interesting. Like I went to a few of the neurologists that I was seeing and said, can I get psilocybin? And they said, you're crazy. Like there's no way we could ever prescribe you psilocybin. So do you see a world like are we are we two years away from we are being some able to get years pre- away, Not many. Like, but that is one of the big two- studies. Yeah. Compass is doing, yeah. So cluster headache is one of the indications. Uh, I'm very convinced that it's going to work. Uh, so it's some years away. Hmm. Yeah, I would love to participate in any trials. <laughs> I hope you if are. you have them. Yeah. No, yeah. and by the way, and I, I know. I mean, it's. I'm always a little bit like hesitant because, like in biotech, you always have to say the trials are there, or like to. Um, to prove things, yeah. So I yeah, yeah. and I want to want to say that as a disclaimer because I mean that why, what I'm so proud of is that Atai and Compass that we proving all of that, yeah. The good thing though is, and by the way, that is by the way helps for all of Atai's drug. This is why, by the way, I'm also so confident on the economic potential of Atai is that practically we know that stuff that it works. Yes, I have to. We have to prove it in a modern FDA compliant way, but on all of that stuff, there is so much research out there, most from the last century. Yeah. And by the way, again, I just can repeat it. Some of our drugs in our portfolio had been already medically available in the last century in some countries of the world. So we have this enormous amount of sort of old data. And then additionally, we have a lot of, let's call it recreational or anecdotal data. For example, when I say ibogaine has the ability to cure addiction, I'm so confident to say that because there are ibogaine clinics in Mexico and other parts of South America where it's legal and people are helped. So I met so many friends of mine who had severe addiction from alcohol to heroin and they were all helped. Yeah. So And so we either have this historic data or that anecdotal data. And what Atai is practically doing is, is doing the data now in a sort of FDA compliant, rigorous way but different than any other medical company, any other biotech company, where you always have a little bit of a risk of failure, of price failure. I don't see that with Atai. So, so I think we're enormously downside protected. And at the same time, by the way, just economically speaking, we're gonna, we gonna have the, we have the full upside of a, at the moment, 11 drug program, soon more uh, biotech company, which can easily be a $50 billion company somewhere. Yeah, so, and uh, so coming to your cluster, so you can be really be confident. It, as you say, like, it's not even me saying that. It's like people saying that online because they tried it. By the way, that's what we're doing also a lot. We're scrapping a lot. And that's the great thing of the internet. You find people together. That's, by the way, how ketamine, that's a funny equal thing. Like, ketamine is around there since forever. Like, it's, a, it's by the way, ketamine is very interesting because it is already today the old version, the so-called racemic ketamine, is, is already 
I don't know, since 50 years, since a long time. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an anesthetic. It's a, it's a tranquilizer anesthetic. Yeah, in hospitals, by the way, allowed. It's completely medically legal drug. It's illegal if people take it outside the hospitals because you can become very dizzy. Blah, blah, blah. And then actually groups like your cluster buster yeah, for depression, whatever, and especially groups where doctors participated, more than 10 years ago, it started to become known anecdotally in these online fora that people who had severe depression and took ketamine, maybe a lot of them sadly got ketamine when they tried to kill themselves. So they were in the hospital, had to be tranquilized. Yeah, And ketamine is actually a very non-risky, sort of say mild tranquilizer. Uh, the people at the next day were like, oh, why, why did I try to kill myself? Life is awesome. So people were like, what happened? Like, why? Are, so, wait, wait, so, wait. So, so, wait, so Christian, so someone very close in my family, I, you'll appreciate this. This is, sorry to interrupt, but someone very close to my family had very, had very, very bad depression and took, you know, years of like pills and went to different doctors and, and had took, I think, a, a boatload of about 35 to 40 different pills and nothing worked. And, you know, the depression where you're like bedridden and you don't want to do anything. And uh, she underwent four different ketamine uh, sessions, like all day, basically, like, I think it was like in ketamine injections. And that was two years ago and completely fixed the depression. Well, that, that's it. And this became yeah. known. Yeah. So, yeah. and then, but what happened, by the way, shows you also how, because again, it's my, one of my favorite sort of controversial topics is how important it is to have patterns because the so-called racemic ketamine people realize that but nobody was willing to take the money and make a study on it because everybody would just produce ketamine because it's out of patent yeah so it stayed a sort of online thing and and then more, there were some clinics, like some doctors starting to do it. But like if a doctor does it and there is no study for the indication he's using it, then he has a higher risk of uh, liability, whatever. So not a lot of doctors like to do that. It's called off-label use. But people did it. Yeah. Till luckily uh, um, a professor in Japan found out that actually the so-called racemic ketamine consists of two, let's simplify, say, subforms, R-ketamine and S-ketamine. And they were patentable, yeah. And Johnson and Johnson was actually focusing on S-ketamine, which hindsight turned out to be the wrong decision. And we got R-ketamine, which luckily turned out to be the right decision, because we have the strong indication that our R-ketamine is even more antidepressant and less sort of disassociative. So in our portfolio, actually, the R-ketamine could be one of the drugs which could be actually, hopefully be approved for use at home in order to give people sort of a, a quick fix like with your friend. Yeah, I still would always say on the long version, if somebody had depression, a sort of a real psychedelic like psilocybin or DMT can be very helpful additionally. Yeah, but yes, so ketamine is a great, great quick fix yeah, for depression. And this is why now in the Atai portfolio, I think our ketamine is, uh, is, is is economically one of the most promising and most advanced uh, ones we have um and yeah so but you best uh, best example with your friend yeah um the biggest the most quite I, I know we're coming up on time the number one question i was getting in my twitter dms when i said i was talking to christian is was actually about your personal life and habits and rituals and routines which i don't i don't know why but people were fascinated by it 
And uh, I think perhaps they've heard you say that you take 40 pills a day. So I want to ask you about sleep, food, personal tools, tech, reading. I know we don't have too much time, so maybe we can yeah, do it a little. Okay, so, so, okay, very, so first of all, by the way, I think rituals and, and stuff is super important. Yeah, this is how our yeah. mind works. By the way, that's why, bigger picture, the world is... So one thing I believe, which is sort of my... Not a contradiction, but what I try actually to bridge is that... You and I, I guess, and all the people we know, we live in that bubble that we love technological innovation, yeah? because that's what we're dealing with the whole day. But I realized over the last years that the vast majority of people, by the way, is terribly afraid of it because our mind, the world we're building, what you and I love is terrible for our brain. So my personal view is, by the way, that somewhere in the next 10 years, we, we, we're going to see an, like a an pandemic which makes COVID dwarf in mental health problems. Yeah, as I said, 1 billion already now. I think way more people have it, but don't come forward. But ultimately, I think because the world we're building is so bad for our brain, is like I always say, is sort of a little bit to the point or thing, is the, the total addressable market, I think down the road for a tie, is 100% of the world population. Yeah, because the world we're building is so bad for it. Yeah. So and one thing what we all need and missing is routine because our brain wants stability, wants planability. And that's exactly what our world is not. It's turning quickly and there is news flow left and right. And so 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 I think building up sort of your small world of routines, whatever the routine, by the way, is, is already good. Yeah. Just on that. Yeah. So but what are what are big things like I, what are things which people can do easily? Yes, I take 40 roundabout supplements pills a day uh i someone have to meaning i have it actually as a document i need to check the legal implications if i publish that because it's like medical advice yeah and it shouldn't be really everybody should research it him or herself but like but like it's by the way it's very 80 20 rule because so many people always after this podcast dm me and like can you send me the list and i'm like i don't yeah, know yeah. Like, eat, eat uh, healthy work out every day and yeah but like that's by the way, 90 percent of it it's really that like but like, okay, let's like, so eat health is clear, like workout, by the way, not too much, like too crazy workout is also not good for you. So it's sort of moderate workout. Sleep is incredibly important. So one book everybody should read just because it makes it so clear is Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Yeah. Harvard professor for sleep. You have to sleep well. Yeah. You have to get enough sleep. How, how many hours sleep. of sleep do you get? I try to sleep eight hours plus, And one of the big things... One of the luxuries in my life is I work a lot because I love it, but I never do early meetings unless it has to be so that my that I can sleep as long as I need it. Because it's not just the amount of sleep, it's also you need to finish cycles. So it could be that my alarm clock would ring at 9.15 and I just need five minutes more, but these five missing limits cost me the whole cycle. So as much as I can, and I can most of the days, I'm not waking up with an alarm clock, but I'm waking up because I wake up. Yeah. So that's uh, if you can manage that with your job, I think that's one of the biggest life hacks. Don't wake up with an alarm clock. Let your body sleep as long as it needs to. So alcohol is super bad. Don't do it full stop. There is nothing good in alcohol. Don't do it. Yeah. Smoking, obviously, any other form of bad drugs. Um, I think on the drug side, metformin is great. This is one of these sort of early uh, longevity drugs. Uh, if you go 
amazing friend of mine, uh, super smart person, go follow actually David Sinclair, the Harvard professor for longevity, uh, because he's putting out some knowledge every day. But like just yesterday, I remember he put out like this sort of amazing power of metformin. Um, so then actually what he's also recommending is NAD+, which is a supplement, Yeah, is, is a big jump forward. Fasting is great. So I do intermittent fasting. I, I, I try to have, or I do have no breakfast. So if I, if my dinner is early enough and my lunch is late enough, I normally get 16 to 18 hour every single day where I have zero calorie intake, just black coffee and tea, but no sugar, no milk, nothing. Yeah. So really like zero calorie intake for as long as you can. So some would, by the way, there are many, many ways to fast. Like some do three, uh, three days fast every three months. Yeah. I think for me, the easiest is 16 to 18 hour fasting every single day, which I make very well. Uh, these are the big things like, let me think, but, um, what about, do you eat a uh, meat, vegan fish? What's I'm, your food I'm, not, I'm not vegan. I think there is a lot of value to it, but I do eat fish. So I'm practically pescatarian, I think in English. Yeah. So, uh, I eat rarely meat. I'm not, not zero eating meat, but more like, okay, when there's, so I'm not like sort of, fully uh, vegetarian or pescatarian, but like mainly, yeah, I would say as little meat as possible, fish, uh, vegetables, uh, low carb. Uh, so I try to eat no bad carbs, which is bread, uh, rice, sugar. Uh, I, I practically, if I eat carbs, I eat lentils, beans and stuff like that. Hmm. Uh, are there any personal like tech tools or gadgets that you're using right now to track everything? No, I'm very bad in that actually, because sort of, uh, I think the, the day has just 24 hours. I'm like overloaded with information anyway. So I, I have actually, I think a very good feeling for my body. Like I, I know when I do certain things, okay, I feel bad if I eat carbs, I know I'm gaining a little bit of weight. So I'm seeing that I always, it's, I do see the value. If you see it in front of you, that was for me, actually the value of the book, why we sleep. I knew sleep is important, but if you read all the statistics, you're like, wow, sleep is really important. Yeah. So, so yes, I always think I should have a more comprehensive monitoring tool. And I really, it's just like, I'm actually surprisingly bad myself with tech gadgets. Like, although we invest in it all the time. Yeah. Um, it's like, I feel my life is too full with information. So I also into simplification. So I eliminated a lot of things. I, yeah, you could say like, obviously I can afford it, but like, I don't go shopping. I don't cook. Like I, I made my life very much focused on the things I love to do, which is at the end investing and creating companies. So, so no, not too much information. Got it. Um, all right. I know we're coming up on time. One question I ask everyone, and then, uh, you can flip the interview on me and ask me one question if you want. Um, the question is, what is one thing that is keeping you up at night? Or actually I'll rephrase it for this specific interview, which is during your next trip, what is the big takeaway or one thing that you're really trying to think through? These are two different answers because the trips are always very, very personal. So in terms of in a very wide sense, and then there are different questions below that. How can I be a sort of decent human being and what is life all about? These are always the two questions. So I want to be a good person and I want to fully understand why we're here. And I think I got already some great insights on trips. 
So, but that's sort of, so, but that's not what's keeping me away at night. Like I'm not waking up in the middle of the night and like, oh my God, I need to be, uh, uh, how do I be a good human being? So what keeps me up at night at the moment, I would say, in terms of worries, as, as I said before, I think we underestimate the change which will happen over the next five to seven years, not longer, with that arising conflict with China and the US. Yeah. So I think in a best case scenario, it's kind of becoming a new Cold War. And but because China at the moment is so integrated in the world, which Russia back then never was yeah, um, and not important either in certain ways. I think we all don't know. And so it's worth thinking about it. How will the world change in any, in any way, business, everything, if that conflict sort of intensifies um and then obviously the worst case would be is there a, is there an armed conflict somewhere which i could imagine around taiwan because my i think the probability that china is is doing something with taiwan over a longer period and longer period is not 20 years like in the next decade yeah is unfortunately high and then nobody knows how the west is right we are in this strange situation where Sort of, there are many things, and all of them could be rather bad, like so, not really good outcomes. So, so that I'm sort of trying to pay attention. There is nothing you can do, and there is nothing. But I, I think a lot when I look at new investments, how would this investment do in a more divided world where you really have China and the rest? So I would not do investments, for example, at the moment which are heavily dependent that the world sort of the globalized world world with China, including, is going on like that, and I just ignore the conflict. So that's mm. what's keeping me up at night. Amazing. So if I ask you, meaning for me, my job is practically, and as I said, most of the, the interesting, sort of almost life-changing big investments I did was like meeting Brandon Bloomer from Block One, who showed me the whole world of crypto, meeting the president of Rwanda, who showed me Africa, meeting... Uh, meeting the neuroscientist at a dinner randomly who made me aware of uh, of psychedelics like so what is like the other way around like what's what keeps you up now what is let's make it positive like what is the in your last month whatever on your podcast whatever what is the sort of most like crazy idea or person you encountered which is sort of not mainstream like did somebody say which is that's the next psychedelic thing or not in psychedelics you know what i mean like but that's the next thing nobody thinks about because the great thing with psychedelics was that nobody had it on the radar ever because we invented the sector so um do you have anything mm. like that where like, oh i met that guy and i think he's onto something really really big which nobody has seen yet yeah i think there are two ways to answer that question one is what i'm personally really really excited about having had dozens of these conversations. I keep I keep hearing really, really smart people talk about nuclear, which makes me want to look into nuclear more. Um, I But I just don't know enough about it to talk about it. But it's on my kind of side list of things to look into because the smartest people I speak with are all really excited about it. No, I want to say I agree. We just did a big investment in a fusion company. Um, uh, yeah, fusion, yeah, people yeah, keep it. Yeah. 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 So... Nuclear and fusion. This is one of the hypocrisies of our world that all the people who are warning or who want to change the climate change direction we're going, which I do agree. We, 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 
sort of never I never answered on that question. So yeah, I always say yes. I think climate change is real. Yeah, I'm personally, by the way, and I'm not want to put it in any corner, but I think again we simplify too much. So I, I my personal takeaway is I think it's a combination of man-made and the natural cycle. Yeah, which doesn't make it better. I'm just saying like I think, but like so, but like even more. I think if man-made is just a part of it, I actually the out the outcome is you have to be even even harder or crazier in the changes we need to do because sort of I'm not thinking we contributing to 100% of the problem, but that means we really 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 need to cut CO2 emissions and the only way to do it is nuclear. Meaning, whoever wants to talk about climate change and not sort of talk about nuclear is a hypocrite because he's not thought it through. That's my simple takeaway. Yeah. The two things we need to nuclear and um, uh, lab-grown meat, because what we need to get rid of is all the emissions of energy con- uh, production. Because by the way, because it's ridiculous to imagine. Because also like Tesla, great, but like somewhere the 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 the, the, uh, the electricity is coming, so it's not falling from the sky. Like so, so to say, oh, we we just do electric cars doesn't solve the problem. Electric cars from clean energy sources solves the problem and that's a long way to go with just wind and solar hence we need nuclear and the second big problem is we need to stop farming so we either turn fully vegan the whole planet yeah or which won't happen yeah so or we we completely change to lab grown meat this is what i believe i think in 10 years farming will be illegal with animals by the way because it's cruel like shit like let's be honest like Nobody of us thinks about how these animals suffer. So this is why it's one of the reasons, again, I'm, I can't fully say, I wish I could, like I'd never eat meat, but I eat it less and less because it's like, it's bad. I mean, it's bad from a moral point of view, but it's also bad from a climate change point of view. So we need to replace that. But because I don't think that people worldwide will have that view, I'm fully investing a lot, a lot, a lot in uh, in any form of lab-grown real meat because it's not, I don't... Yes, the alternatives, sort of these sort of um, plant alternatives to taste like meat, they, they're not really healthy, by the way. So they, so it doesn't do the trick. Yeah, it's maybe a transition. So the real thing is grow meats, but also like other animal products. We're just uh, investing in a cool company who does the whole dairy production, anything dairy related in the lab, and it's working out. That's big. Yeah. So, but huh. sorry, but back. Interesting. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, the other thing is, uh, that I'm personally just really excited about is, is DeFi. And I've been in the industry for, I mean, a decently long time. And I think everything that we've been working for, so take Bitcoin aside. I think Bitcoin is amazing. Most of my crypto portfolios in Bitcoin, but I think we've all been, what we've all been waiting for and building for is, is DeFi. And I think that when I think about like maybe what my kid's life will look like, or what the world will look like in 15 years or 20 years. I don't have a kid yet, by the way, but if I did, what their world would look like is we will just have these basically DeFi protocols and and for-profit businesses will be built on top of of the DeFi protocols. And I'm, com- I'm completely convinced of this. Um, and, and there's the whole stack of DeFi with the base layer and the middleware like Uniswap and Compound and then the aggregators like Zerion and I don't know. I'm just, I've never been had so much conviction as I have in DeFi right now, uh, except for Bitcoin. So, yeah, by the way, hundred percent agree. Uh, I think 
if I rephrase it, I think the whole winning, I, I still believe capitalism fully will be there because I think it's the best form we found to organize economic cooperation. But like that doesn't necessarily mean that the traditional form, how a company works today, I think it's very archaic. Like a company is like, we, we defined it 100 years ago, or more than 100 years ago, that you have a limited or whatever, and that this is the way how sort of uh, a mutual undertaking is is organized. Yeah, and it's also a very like not perfect way because which we talk so much about that the rich are getting richer, but you can also rephrase it that the, the ordinary people don't get their fair share in economic outcome. And I think one reason is, for example, though, that our the, the way we structure enterprises is so old fashioned. And I think a tokenized economy where you way better can incentivize and reward people for what they're contributing yeah, will sort of change, soften, and maybe even eliminate a lot of the gaps which the current system has. So, uh, so I 100% agree. By the way, we say we don't talk about it, but I can say it now in a not too detailed way. But like, I think when this thing, when our podcast comes out, like the big company I have in my portfolio, which I'm a huge fan of, again, as I said it already multiple times, because I think he's one of the best entrepreneurs in crypto is, is Brandon Bloomer from Block One. But Block One, which is already publicly out, and I'm just adding a little bit because it should be then more public next week, is that so there Block One created an exchange called Bullish, yeah, which is the way more than just another exchange. Um, because I think it is will be the platform for we like to call it ProFi because sort of DeFi as it's done at the moment has very sort of nasty, not loopholes, but like the whole compliance stuff. And we also, again, you can say like, hey, compliance, don't, who needs it? But like, but like, that's the world we live in. And yeah, a certain form of compliance and sort of, yeah, is good and regulation. And I think bullish is the perfect platform and exchange for DeFi in a very, very compliant and professional way. And if whenever people are listening to that, I'm very sure there will be huge news, very good ones, cool ones out about bullish. Uh, so next week, practically, <laughs> I hopefully yeah. uh, like, uh, look it up and look at the services. Yes, I think this hopefully this is out by the time the announcements come. But bullish, uh, inter- I, phenomenal name, by the way, phenomenal branding. Brandon is so amazing with names. I, I was yeah. like, if I when I have kids, he's going to name them. <laughs> I mean, Christian, this was such an enjoyable conversation. Just on a personal note, I I find you fascinating and your ideas fascinating, and I love that you're such an optimist in what can sometimes be a pessimistic world. So, but don't I, I, don't be. Don't, that is my main message: is life is fucking awesome. Like, and I agree, my I friend. Know I agree. Say that <laughs> I have to say, sorry, you know, at time like. like because I really, really think a lot about that. Like people that normally say, oh yeah, there's a rich guy uh, talking about life is awesome. Like, but I'm not coming from a, um, uh, as I said, a rich family, nor I had very, very hard times. But like my main learning in life is, yeah, if you have these sort of optimistic ground basic view, it's gonna pay off. It's the better way to be like, like it's just like nicer, like it's nicer for you, yeah, not just for others. And the two things, if somebody wants to read it, because these are the two books who made me, if we, uh, when you ask me the beginning, which events or whatever made me, the two really books who made me is one is uh, Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. I think still the standard book every entrepreneur should read. And the second one on the spiritual level is, um, 
uh, is Law of Attraction. Yeah. Uh, so these two books, yeah, and then I think we deserve to be happy. I think that's what we're here for. And we should all invest a lot of time and thoughts in finding out what makes us happy and then live accordingly. I just, uh, I just re-listened to it, my friend. <laughs> Amazing. No, it's like, cool. it, is a, it is a time. I, 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 you know, I first read, I first read those two books and, uh, Dale Carnegie's book and yeah. Robert Kiyosaki's book when I was 18 years old and really desperate to kind of break out of the system and, I think reading those four books when I was 18 had more of an impact than any one person I've ever met, any class I've ever taken, any podcast I've ever listened to. 100%, by the way, 100%. I couldn't agree more. And it's so cheap. That is the only thing I'm like, you need this tiny bit of self impetus to buy these books. That's it. There is no magic more than reading. Like, and in generally, by the way, I love to read, but like, it's not that, again, I didn't have expensive education. I mean, I dropped out of university. Like, yeah, it's just like there is nothing elitist about anything. Get those books. They're going to change your life. I agree. All right, Christian. Until next time. It was amazing. And with pleasure, we can do it again.